And Hebrews is just like it says. It's Hebrews. Those are Jews. It's written to Jews, uh, for Jews, about Jews, by a Jew. And in Hebrews chapter 2, and if anybody know anything about the covenants that God gave to the Jews, it would be a Jew and the Jews that are there. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 6, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection unto his feet. For in that he putteth all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him so it has a future context as well but that's a reference to Psalms 8 which is a reference to the creation of man he made us to him he says in this passage that's creation so that's the Edenic covenant uh, that deals with the garden of Eden when God made man and when he made man he gave him dominion he gave us that covenant that's there in the garden of Eden now in the same chapter in verse number nine but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Well, death came upon who? Came upon Adam. And Jesus comes to take away the death, the curse that came upon Adam that goes back to the Adamic covenant there in verse number 9. And so they well understood that. That has to do with the Adamic covenant and how Jesus came to remove death uh, by giving us eternal life. Uh, look back in verse number 8, by the way. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That goes back to the Noahic covenant when Noah got off the ark. And you can find other references in Hebrew, but uh, the book of Hebrews. But when Noah got off the ark, God gave him dominion over everything, just like he gave to Adam. And so uh, Noah walks off the ark, and he's got dominion over the beast and over all that, that was on the ark and over the earth. And God tells him to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So we see the Edenic covenant in one chapter. We see the Adamic covenant. We see reference to Noah in the Noahic covenant. Look in verse number 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver him uh, them from uh, through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So there we have the reference to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. We see that in this chapter, a reference to Abraham. Jesus, you say, what did he look like and what nationality was him? He, he was of the seed of Abraham. He was a Jew. Everybody's trying to figure out, was he white, was he black? All, he was a Jew. He's of the seed of Abraham as far as his earthly physical body and flesh was concerned. And he had to be in order for all those covenants and promises to be fulfilled through Abraham. Uh, and so it just goes beyond that in chapter number 3 in verse number 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, capital A, and high priest, capital H, capital P, that's Jesus, of our uh, profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in his house. So we have now the Mosaic reference here in this chapter. Look in verse number 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So we've got Moses now being referenced. Now we're at the Mosaic Covenant. I go back to chapter number 1 and look in verse number 5. For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I for, uh, begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Um, and uh, look down in verse number 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, forever and ever is the scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. That's a reference to the Davidic covenant. In fact, that's a direct quote out of Psalms. Psalms chapter 104, verse 4. And so that's here the writer of Hebrews is referencing 
David as king. We talked about that the last two studies, the Davidic covenant. So now we've got a reference to the Davidic covenant, how that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill the promise that God gave to David and to his uh, uh, sons, his descendants. Uh, and that goes back all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I'm just showing you tonight that the covenants are all through the Bible. But we see them in a nutshell in just one book alone in the book of Hebrews. In fact, in just really two chapters, two or three chapters here, we see all of these covenants together. When we started our study, I talked about how that there's nothing more important than to find out if God said anything. And if God said anything, what did he say? And where can we get our hands on it? If you have a Bible tonight, you have what God said. God gave you what he said. You've got it, and that the, the message that God said is not just a bunch of genealogies, it's not just a bunch of stories, but it is God's direct communication with his own creation. God speaking to mankind. God speaking, God saying something, God conveying something. The covenants, more than just about anything else, is where God intervened in history. We, now, these covenants, by the way, have covered over 4,000 years of history. 4,000 years of history in these covenants, and yet God is speaking. God is intervening. He's talking to people. He's talking to human beings. He's talking to individuals. He's talking to families. He's talking to a nation. He's talking to the whole world in these covenants. These are His agreements. These are His contracts. These are His promises that he made between himself and man so that may, means tonight the bible is what the world don't want to accept it as it is also a history book it's a history book now if the world's concerned about history why don't they study the bible but they outlaw it and they forbid it to be taught because they don't believe it's history but if god has spoken for four thousand years of history we ought to know what god said in history that's what these covenants have all been about. We've studied six of them already, how God made a covenant between himself and individuals. That is what we've been studying. We've studied about the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. If you notice, there is a, a, uh, a way of, they start out kind of small and go big. For example, they start out with individuals and they go up to a family, they go up to a nation, and now look at all of us tonight as we study the new covenant, how it, it encompasses all of us that have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. It starts off small, gets bigger as it goes. The first one was one man, then it was to a man and his wife, then it was a man and his wife and his children, then it was all the ones that came from a man, his descendants, his wife, his children, all of them that were there. Then God gave David a covenant. It would be through his son and his line and his family that eventually would be a king who would be the king with a capital K who would rule and have dominion over all the world. That's the new covenant. That's where we're studying tonight is this new covenant. And the new covenant is set up by Jesus Christ. All these other covenants were by God to man, but now we've got one by the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's got a covenant he wants to make. And I know Jesus is God and God is Jesus, but here Jesus makes a covenant and he said, I'm going to give you a new one. Now I want you to look tonight at the last chapter of the Old Testament and it's in Malachi chapter number 4. Malachi chapter number 4. Malachi chapter number 4, in verse number 6, it ends with these words. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers, this is how our Old Testament ends, to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the, word, the world, uh, the earth, with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament is curse. You know, the Bible says, Cursed is anyone that hangeth upon a tree. There's coming in the Gospel of Matthew someone who's going to hang on a tree and he's going to lift the curse of the Old Testament law. That Old Testament ends with the curse, but if you, I don't know what your Bible looks like, I've got a page between the Old Testament 
But after that, I've got another page that says New Testament. You see that? Those words New Testament means we got a new covenant in here. It isn't like the old covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that all those old covenants are done away with. It just means God's got something else that he wants to say. He's got a new covenant. And the new covenant involves not just David and, and not just uh, Abraham and not just Noah and not just Adam and all those that were there. It involves you and it involves me. It involves the whole world because in John 3, 16, we're going to find that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, there's an old covenant and yes, there is a new covenant, a new testament. That's what that word testament uh, is uh, alluding to. It's a new contract. It's a new commitment. It's a new promise. It's a new covenant set up by Jesus Christ himself. Now I want you to look in the book of Hebrews chapter number 9. If you were back there, just go back to the book of Hebrews. Chapter number 9 in verse number 16. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 16. This is important as we study this new covenant. For where a testament, well we just said we have a new testament and an old testament. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. That means in order for the testament to be in full effect, the one that is the testator, the one that's giving the testament has to die. Uh, a lot of times when someone passes away, we, we now call it a will, but people used to refer to it as a last will and testament. And I don't know if they keep that last part on there anymore, but I know they always used to. It might still be on there. But it's the last will and testament. Now, the will really doesn't go into effect until somebody dies. Somebody's got to die. If somebody left me a million dollars in their will, I don't get it until they die. Now, you shouldn't wish for that to happen, but that's just the truth of it. That's how it, it works. You don't get it until they die. I see all the time people are putting in their will their pets. That blows my mind. I see people that are billionaires leaving their billions to their cat. Now, what, is, what in the world is a cat going to... I mean, there's all the kittle in the world, all the cat food in the world, all the little cat treats and little fuzzy mice and all that. You couldn't buy all of it for the billions they leave them. Uh, that's just foolishness. But yet they leave that to a cat. Now, I will say this. I know a lot of people that, that are willed to do, they will will their fortune to a church, and that can be used in a good way or to missions or something like that. And a lot of times it's left for children, their, their kids, just to fight over it. I know many people. I know a few millionaires, by the way, and uh, which we're all millionaires if you're saved. Somebody say amen. We just don't get it down here. We get it up there. But uh, I'm rich. You just didn't know it. Uh, I don't look the part, but I, I've got it. Uh, but I don't get to the, the, the access that bank till I leave this world. Uh, but I know a lot of people that are millionaires. They're very well, that they refuse to leave their millions to their kids. I see movie stars even do it all the time. Because they know they're just going to fuss and fight over it. But the idea is the last testament is the last instructions, the last contract given by that person before they die. We've got before us a testament. And the testament is the words of Jesus Christ. And it's his covenant. And it took him dying for it to go into effect. But he did die and he rose again. And now we get the effect, we get the benefit of the covenant because our testator died, rose again, and he's coming back again. So that means that a testament is something that a man says or does before he dies. In the Old Testament, you say, who was dying there uh, under the testament? Of course, millions of people died, but under the testament, it was not a person, it was animal sacrifices. In the Old Testament... That testament was connected with death as well and a curse, but it was associated with blood. It was associated with death and dying. But it wasn't human, and it wasn't the blood of God. It was animal sacrifices. Animals are dying. You read over there in Exodus. 
in Leviticus, those sacrifices that were made and take this, this bird and you do this to it and you take this lamb and you do that to it and you take this ox and you do that to it and you take this animal and you sacrifice it this way and some was under running water and some was, their neck was broken and some of it, they're, uh, they're, they're, I mean, it gets kind of gory to tell you the truth. I, I, don't, I thank God I'm not a priest under the Old Testament. I wouldn't have had it in me. I couldn't do it. But they did all of that. Why? Because there was a blood requirement under that testament, just like there's a blood requirement under the New Testament. But before in the Old Testament, it was animals. But here's the problem. Look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Now, God's the one that set up the sacrificial system of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all of that, but he said it couldn't take away sin. That phrase is the important phrase. It's all important, but that's the emphasis. It couldn't take the sin away. In the New Covenant, the sin's going to be taken away. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it's not the blood of animals. It's going to be the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's going to be the blood of the Son of God, and this time His blood can take away the sin. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 26. Everybody likes to look at the picture of the Last Supper and see it in all the movies about the life of Jesus, and we all know the famous uh, painting of the Last Supper and all of that, but there's so much more to Jesus just sitting down and eating with the disciples and Judas betraying him and all that. In fact, we'll never fully, I don't believe, understand it all until the Lord explains everything to us, but there's so much more to this. This is not just the Lord. And By the way, I, I forgot to make the announcement. We are having the Lord's Supper Sunday night. Uh, it's a fifth Sunday. We, we decided to do it Sunday night, so pass it along. If you know anybody, let everybody know. Sunday evening. In fact, there's nothing unscriptural with that. It's called the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Lunch. Amen? So we can have it in the evening. You don't have to be in the morning. Uh, and so we're going to have the Lord's Supper. But here in verse 26 is where the Lord institutes the Lord's Supper. And we find it here, and we find it in Mark 14, 22, in Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks about it as well. And in verse 26, and as they were eating... Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Every word of God is true. Every word of God is perfect. Every word of God is important. He's telling you remission for a reason. Remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that reference to the kingdom is a reference to the Davidic promise. But right there in it, he said, I have a new covenant and it's in this cup and it's my blood. Now, some religions take this literally and they believe that cannibalistically Jesus magically turned this cup into his blood but he didn't his blood was still in his body in fact his blood hadn't even be shed, been shed yet it wouldn't be shed till he goes to the cross so it's a symbolic it's a memorial supper but there's more to it than what he than what meets the eye he said this fruit of the vine is a picture of my blood this fruit of the vine he's holding the grapes in his hand this fruit of the vine the fruit of the vine is grapes, not grape juice. Grapes, the fruit of an apple tree is apples. The fruit of an orange tree is orange, oranges. The fruit of a banana tree is bananas. The fruit of a, an orange tree is not orange juice, it's oranges. The fruit of an apple tree is apples, not apple juice. The fruit of the vine is grapes, not even grape juice. It's grapes. He said this fruit of the vine. You say, Brother Ben, you're reading too much into it. That's what Jesus said. It's not my interpretation, not my opinion. It's what he said, this fruit of the vine. Now, 
Back in Matthew chapter number 9, we're going to go back here in a minute, but Matthew chapter number 9, we see a prophecy about the church age because that's what this New Testament involves is us that are saved. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 16, as we see in this story here, this parable, this is a parable about, about us. This is a parable about our salvation and about the new covenant Verse 16, no man putteth a piece of, notice the word new, new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up maketh, taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. That word preserved is, a, is a, a reference to our eternal security, by the way. We're preserved. It's a picture of a lost man and a saved man. The same man, but if you're saved, you were lost, not you're saved. God can't put new wine into an old bottle. He has to make you new first. Once he makes you new, now he can put the new wine in you. But he can't put the new wine in an old bottle. He can't put the new piece of garment on an old garment. It's a picture of what Jesus is doing for us in our New Testament salvation. The Holy Spirit cannot enter your flesh until you're made new. That's why the Bible says when we come to Jesus Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's why the Bible says we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. He put new wine in a new bottle. Now, we still look like we're the old bottle. But inside of us, and we can't see it, there is a spirit and a soul that has now been made new by this New Testament. And the New Testament has made us new. And the picture that Jesus gives is of his blood. His blood. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about this tonight, but I will give you a couple references. Look in Isaiah chapter 65. It is never a reference to fermented alcohol. I don't care how many people out there try to make it that way. It is impossible. And I'll show you proof, absolute proof in Scripture that it was impossible. All you needed, by the way, is Exodus chapter number 12. Jesus is taking the feast of unleavened bread. And if you go back and read Exodus 12, it talks about there can be no yeast, no leaven in the entire dwelling. Uh, when we observed the Passover last year, first time we observed it as a family... And I had uh, inquired about making sure we did everything scripturally. I understand we're not Old Testament Jews, but we did it biblically, all pointing to Jesus, of course, and contacted many Jews that we know that are, uh, that are converted and, and some that aren't. And, uh, and they said, make sure there's no yeast in your dwelling. Luna testified to this. We spent about two or three days before we got everything together going to the house getting every single thing out of the house. I know we're under grace. We did it just because we wanted to. But we went to the house and got every single piece of food out that had any yeast in it. Go home. Here's an assignment for you. Go home and check on the back of your whatever you got at the house. Crackers, cereal, uh, cake mix. You'd be surprised how much has yeast in it. And it'll talk about I mean, you'll see it on there. It'll say yeast or, or some form of yeast. And we carried it all out, carried it all out, carried it all out, put it in our shed. Now, if you really want to get serious about it, what the Jews do even to this day is they get rid of it. They discard it. They don't just put it away and bring it back in after the Passover. Because to them, and get this, they're not even born again, but they get the symbolism of it being a new thing. Uh, they, they, they want it to be a fresh start. So after the Passover, they start off fresh without any of that stuff back in their home. And so uh, the more liberal ones will bring everything back in, but the more conservative ones will get rid of it. In fact, they go to the extent of burning it. They burn it. So once a year, any groceries that has leaven in it, yeast in it, it's burned, it's discarded, they get rid of it. Uh, we didn't do that. We put it in the building. Groceries are expensive. <laughs> Lord forgive us if we did it wrong. Uh, and, you know, we still probably missed something. We still probably forgot something in the freezer or whatever. We've tried to go through everything. But it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And God said, if, any, if there's any yeast, any leaven found in the home, that person to be cut off from Israel. Do you know wine has yeast in it? 
Wine has brewer's yeast in it. It has fermentation. It has natural yeast. And all new wine, and when I say new, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm talking about modern wine, has yeast in it to raise the alcohol content in it. So there's no way that, but anyway, let's, let's, that's a whole other study. But Isaiah 65, verse number 8. Isaiah 65 and verse number 8. Everybody's trying to always trying to do everything they can to, to force alcohol at the Lord's Supper. It blows my mind. But look at Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found where? In the cluster. Not in the bottle. Not in a holding tank till it ferments and, it, and the alcohol content gets up to a certain level. He says, the wine... The new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not. For a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Biblically, the wine is in the cluster. That's what the Bible says. I ain't a Baptist preacher that's just trying to be a teetotaler and being anti-alcohol. I'm just telling you what the Bible says tonight. I'm not going to argue whether you can use it or not use it. I'm just telling you, we're talking about the blood of Jesus, and it's important. Go back to Genesis chapter 40. Here's a great image of it in Genesis chapter 40. You say, does it really matter? It does matter. Because Jesus' blood was either perfect or it wasn't. Either it was sinless or it wasn't. Either it was corrupted or it wasn't. In Genesis chapter 40 and verse number 11, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I gave the cup unto Pharaoh's hand. You know, that wasn't an uncommon way of getting it. They didn't go to the Walmart and to the Food Lion and the Harris Teeter or wherever grocery store, the Piggly Wiggly or the Kroger or somewhere and get a plastic bottle in it. They had other ways of doing it. And the, the most convenient way, the freshest wine, was to get it straight out of the cluster. They squeezed it right in there. You say, what difference does it make? It's a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. And his blood is not corruptible blood. It's not fermented. It's not rotten. It doesn't give you a buzz and make you high. It doesn't give you a hangover the next day. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's to be pure blood. The picture is found in the grapes and in the juice of the grapes. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let me give you a couple more and we'll move on. But Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here's Israel. They're out there wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And God gives a prophetic reference about all of this back in the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, two places. We'll look first of all in Deuteronomy 32 and then Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and uh, in verse number 12, we'll start there. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him, talking about Israel, he made him ride on the high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of the fields and he might uh, and he made for him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the, uh, the flinty rock. Verse 14, butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the, uh, uh, the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. You see that tonight? God said blood and grape juice are connected as far back as Deuteronomy chapter number 32. That's why it took grape juice to picture the blood of Jesus Christ. It said the blood of the grape. You don't read that in any other form, in any other vegetable, fruit, or anything in the world. You've never heard of the blood. Now, there's blood oranges, but I'm talking about uh, the, the blood uh, of the orange or the blood of the banana or the blood of the apple or the blood of the pear. But the Bible says the blood of the grapes. Now let me show you back in Deuteronomy 29, and we'll stop with this one, for this part. Deuteronomy chapter 29, new wine is the picture of Jesus' blood, not old wine, new wine. Now, we just read in Deuteronomy 32 that they drank the blood out of the grapes. But in Deuteronomy 29, verse number 5, Deuteronomy 29, verse number 5, and I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Israel never drank a drop of fermented alcohol the entire time they were in the wilderness. According 
to Moses in Deuteronomy 29 in verse number 5 and 6. He says, you didn't drink, he said, wine or strong drink. Now, chapter 32 says they did drink grape juice because they got blood of the grape. But here's the proof that it wasn't fermented is the fact he said you didn't drink wine or strong drink. Strong drink would be stronger alcohol. Now, this isn't a lesson about drinking or not drinking. I don't preach a lot of that. I'm just telling you tonight that the blood of Jesus is not pictured by fermented alcohol. I don't care if millions of people say it is. The Bible says it's not. And there's your proof right there. If what Jesus is doing is mimicking what happened in the Old Testament during the Passover and, and as they're traveling in the wilderness and his blood is to be the New Testament in blood, then he drank pure juice out of the grapes. So that was the pure blood from the grape juice. Now it gets a lot deeper than that, but we're not going to get into any of that tonight. It's probably too much already uh, and uh, I don't want to, to, to overkill it, but I'm just telling you, the point is this, the point is Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, he said, this is after he held the cluster, he said, I'll not drink henceforth the best fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he just said that this blood is my New Testament. There's something to the blood of Jesus that's not like your blood and mine. There's something of the blood of Jesus that isn't like the blood of bulls and goats or any other animal sacrifice. And what it what it is all about is the remission of sins and the redemption from sin. Now that phrase for the remission of sins, every time that expression occurs, and it occurs four times in the Bible, it has to do with what Jesus has done for us because of his New Testament, his new covenant he made with us through his blood. Um. I'll show you some examples of that. I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. I know time's ticking, uh, but uh, look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Because I want to wind this up tonight, getting something else next week. But Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's everybody from Adam to us. Being justified freely. That word freely, by the way, is the word that Eve omitted in Genesis chapter 3. It's a picture of our salvation. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So remissions and redemption is not the same thing, but they're connected. But it, we're re, the grace and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His what? Blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Romans 3, 23 and 25 through 25 speaks of redemption and remission. I'll explain that here in just a moment. Go back to Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That's our new covenant. That's what Jesus was talking about, Matthew 26, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that's your Old Testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So he's talking about us being redeemed and our sins being remitted. The Old Testament versus the New in chapter 10, verse number 4. Chapter 10, verse number 4, for it is not possible. We just read that, but it goes along with this. For that the blood of bulls and goats could should take away sins. So our sins now are taken away. In the Old Testament, it's kind of hard to explain in the Old Testament, sins were forgiven, but they weren't taken away. God had been forgiven sins for thousands of years without any real reason to have done it because it took blood to take away the sin. But verse 4 of chapter 10 tells us the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So their sins had been forgiven, but they hadn't been removed. 
When Jesus comes, now those sins are removed. Now through his blood, our sins are not just forgiven, they're taken out of the way. They're removed. They're cast behind God's back. They're buried in the depths of the sea. They're buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. He said, I'll remember them no more as far as, as, far as the east is from the west. So, as he, so far as he moved, removed his transgressions, uh, our transgressions from him. He's got rid of our sin. He's put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. He hadn't done that in the Old Testament. But under the New Testament, he's done it. And now our sins are under the blood. And they are not only forgiven but they are taken away. Um, Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6. Exodus 34 and verse number 6. Here's a great text that describes all of this. Some of y'all looking at me a little puzzled tonight. I want you thinking I'm trying to teach some newfangled doctrine. I'm just telling you what the Bible's been saying for thousands of years. Those that have come before me have preached all of this and taught it and it's just as scriptural tonight as it was then. Here the Lord's getting ready to reveal himself to Moses in a powerful way. In verse number 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, so this is the Lord speaking of himself, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Three things, iniquity, transgression, sin. They're connected, but they're not all the same, but they all are against God. And he said, I've forgiven them. But notice the next part, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and to the fourth generations. God said even though he had forgiven them of their sins, he said I couldn't clear them of their sins. And that's why he said their sins, their iniquity, their transgressions that were there. He said I could by no means clear the guilty. They couldn't be cleared until Jesus came and when Jesus shed his blood, now they're cleared. All sin has to be paid for and it's as simple as this we either pay for our own sins or we accept the payment of the one that paid for our sins Jesus paid for our sins in the Old Testament sure they were looking forward to the cross and you hear all of those comments about looking forward to the cross and backward to the cross and Old Testament New Testament but the truth is in the Old Testament they were forgiven but their sins had not been paid for they weren't paid for till Jesus came and died on the cross, and so now there's someone that's paid for the sin. They've been forgiven, but now they've been cleared if you trust the payment for your sin. So redemption and remission is not the same thing. Let me give you one more. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Here's a big one. Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter number 1, and verse number 14. This verse is so big, Satan hates it. He hates it so much that almost all new translations have removed the most important part of this verse. It's omitted. It's missing. And I'm going to show you how important this phrase is. And you better make sure you have it because if you don't, Satan doesn't like this verse and he's taking it out. But it deals with this New Testament. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, not just remission, redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And do you know that the new translations remove through his blood? Oh, Brother Ben, they just update the these and the thous and all that archaic language. Don't fool yourself. That has nothing to do with archaic language. How many of you can't understand through the blood of Jesus Christ? Is that hard to understand? We have to get a dictionary out and go find the old, I've got the 1828 Webster's Dictionary and pull it out and say, I don't understand through his blood. That's just too old, archaic to understand. They've omitted it. It ain't in there. We have redemption. If you don't have through his blood, how do you get redemption? 
the redemption was not the bulls and the goats and the, the, the lambs. The redemption came through his blood. Without his blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Through his blood, there's forgiveness of sins. He says through his blood, we now have forgiveness of sin. It's all about the blood. The blood is the New Testament. And it's the blood that takes away our sin. In fact, the Bible tells us of Jesus, he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became sin. He wasn't born in sin. That's why he had to be virgin born. Not just the only reason, but that, that's the big one. He couldn't have inherited the same sinful nature the way you and I inherited it. He was God and man, not just man. And so he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became our substitute. He became our bull and our goat and our lamb to take away our sin. He became our sin on the cross. And because of that, he took on our sin. He paid for our sin. And now, not before, but now, our sins are redeemed and forgiven and remitted and they're gone. In verse number 28 Matthew chapter 26, Jesus calls it a testament. And again, a testament is a last will uh, and testament. It cannot come into effect until the death of the testator. And the Old Testament was centered around, as we said, the death of animals. The New Testament is centered around the death of Jesus Christ. In order to get their sins remitted in the Old Testament, there had to be blood shed. But God forgave their sins for 4,000 years. But when Jesus shows up, he not only forgave them, he did away with them. How do I know that? Well, look in Matthew chapter 3. I'll wind this down. Matthew chapter 3. The forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, is showing up. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's that kingdom of David. Jesus didn't get it the first time, but he's going to get it the second time. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here comes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as he prepares the way of the Lord and getting ready for Jesus to come, he's going to preach, and his message is going to be a message of repentance. Uh, his message is in verse number 8, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat, for repentance uh, when he sees Jesus come forward he says behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world the reason he's preaching a message of repentance to the Jews is because God had been forgiving them for sins for thousands of years with no reason to do it because their sins hadn't been paid for yet but he's declaring the one coming the Lamb of God is coming to take the sin away he's coming to pay the price for the sin their sins are going to be Remitted, Their sins are going to be forgiven. Their sins are going to be done away with. Mark chapter number 1. Mark chapter number 1. And verse number 2. As it is written in the prophets, that's back in Isaiah 40 verse 3 by the way. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. For John did baptize the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But when Jesus shows up, he says, there he is. There's the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Now it goes further than that. We're not going to take time to get into Acts chapter 2. And people go over there and they, they try to prove that you have to be baptized in order to have your sins Remitted, uh, and uh, they go to Acts chapter 2 and uh, get in there and try to prove that in verse 36, 38. Uh, but the word for, be baptized for the remission of sin, means because. Not uh, trying to think how to explain it. We're, you're baptized not to get your sins forgiven. That's how they, in, they privately interpret for. They say you've got to be baptized in order to get your sins forgiven. But for means because of. 
you're baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Baptism in the New Testament always follows the forgiveness of sins, never the other way around. And that's a great reason why we're Baptist tonight. We're not Baptist just because we couldn't get along with all the other denominations, so we started our own. We're Baptist because not that, that we are always right, but the Baptists tried to follow the Bible as close as possible. And in the Bible, there are no infant baptisms. I asked a Catholic priest one time, we were talking about it, and I said something about infant baptism. And they go to a reference uh, there in the New Testament where, uh, you know, in our Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And he said, We suppose that when he said that, in their house, there could have been babies. Now, this is the logic they use. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I'm being honest. This is the logic. There could have been babies. Or how about this? There wasn't any babies. For all that matter, there could have been 25 dogs in the house and three cats and four sheep and two donkeys. We don't know what was in their house. You, you can't make a whole doctrine because you, you think you suppose something might have been there. All the body of Scripture has to fit together like a puzzle, like pieces of a puzzle, like a hand in a glove. And if one piece is hanging out here and doesn't go with all the rest, something ain't right. And we know God's Word can't contradict. God's not the author of confusion. So that means this one up here that's kind of different than the rest, either we're not understanding right or we're, we're, we need to pray a little bit harder about it, study that thing out more. Every single instance of baptism followed conversion everyone everyone pictured the death burial and resurrection everyone came after a person repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as their savior and so trying to prove that you got to be baptized folks that water that, that's in the baptistry you know where that water comes from the same place that the water comes from in your house if you're on a well it ain't holy water I hear people all the time talking about their sins were washed away when they got baptized. Your sins don't get washed because you got in some water and your sins went down the drain and went out the septic tank. Are your sins out there? You know, uh, you know uh, it, it goes out to the city sewer or something like that. Your sins are under the blood of Jesus when you get saved. Your sins are actually, if you get really down to it, buried somewhere beneath hell. That's what happened with, when Jesus died on the cross. He took our sins and he took hell for us they're not in a baptistry. We should be baptized, but we're not baptized to take away sin. Jesus took away sin when he died for us on the cross. Now, God won't tolerate a single sin by anyone, anywhere. But he forgave people from their sin even though they had not been paid for. But when he came down, he paid the price for our sin. And that payment, Hebrews goes on to tell us, was once for all. He didn't have to come back and repay for sin. He's paid the price for all sin, past, present, and future. There's still a confession of sin, but it's paid for. And uh, we're going to end with that. Uh, remission and, and redemption are not the same thing, but Jesus did come. That's the whole New Testament is now we, the covenant that God made with us is that if you trust his son, if you, if you take his blood, and apply it to your life and allow his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his blood, not our works, but his blood, we now have a new covenant. And that new covenant also connects us with all those other covenants, especially the one about the coming kingdom, because the Bible says we're now a kingdom of priests unto God, and we're going to rule and reign with him. But you don't get to rule with him and reign with him unless you've come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's our New Testament. I'm getting ready to show a, a movie. It's kind of like a documentary. It's a Christian film uh, that connects the story of the, um, uh, the, the weddings, a Jewish wedding, to the rapture. Um, it's called Before the Wrath. I don't know if anybody's in here seen Before the Wrath. Well, good. When you get to see it, then you'll be the first to see it. Don't go home and watch it yet because I want to show everybody. But very well movie. They're getting ready to do a sequel to it. It's going to come out to theaters, I think, in 2022. Um, but it's a, a great illustration of what Jesus did for us on the cross and how it's a picture of us being united together with Jesus Christ. 
getting us together to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the beginning of the film, it shows in the Jewish wedding, the proposal involves a cup. And I don't want to spoiler alert, you know, but in a Galilean wedding where Jesus ministered, his disciples were Galileans, Jesus was a Galilean. In the Galilean wedding, when a young man wanted to propose to his bride-to-be, soon-to-be fiancé, he would take her a cup of this grape juice. He hands her the cup. If she takes it and drinks of it, she's accepted his proposal. From that point forward, there's about a year planning and preparation. I'm not going to spoil it all before the wedding, and the wedding's going to come in an hour when nobody knows but the father of the groom. The, the, the groom-to-be is going to prepare a room for his bride. Sound familiar? Matthew, chapter, uh, John chapter 14. And while he's getting things ready for the wedding, the bride, she has to stay for, uh, for almost a year. It can be a full year waiting. She slept in her wedding gown even, thinking that at any moment her groom, she's going to hear the, the trumpet, the shofar sound, and the, and the groom's going to say, it's time. Let's go get married. And so she has to wait. But the first acceptance of the proposal is to take the cup and to drink from it. When Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he says, Take, eat this, my body. Take and drink you all of it. He's, he's connecting his new covenant, his marriage contract of the New Testament with his disciples, with us, because we have partaken uh, of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, and now we're part of that new covenant. Aren't you thankful for the new covenant, by the way, tonight? I'm so thankful we don't have to go down to the local livestock yard or livestock auction and, and find a farmer somewhere and go find a little innocent lamb and have to kill it and, and all those things we don't have to do none of that anymore Jesus paid it all all to him I owe I'm thankful for that tonight I hope you've enjoyed our study of the covenants there's a whole lot more but that's what I feel the Lord had had me to teach with it and uh, maybe some other time next year or some other point we'll get back into some more of it but uh if you missed any of the studies, they should all be online, and you can go and see it on YouTube or our church Facebook page and all of that. But thank you for listening and being a part of that study. As we close out our service tonight, I mentioned my friend Heather and, and Heather's um, sister-in-law and their family in prayer. Please.